All praises belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We praise Him and we seek His assistance and guidance and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the adverse consequences of our deeds. Whomsoever Allah guides, none can misguide, and whomsoever Allah misguides, none can guide. And peace and salutations be upon the final messenger, Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I bear witness that there is no one worthy of worship besides one Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his messenger. My dearest brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Islam and uncles and aunties if needed, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be upon you all. Welcome to day three of Knowledge Hive 2017, courtesy of Al Kawthar Institute. Um, brothers and sisters in Islam, Brother Tahir informed me that uh, you guys need some baroka. Um, I'm not here to advertise any brands, by the way. I, I had to set this disclaimer because of the camera and uh, the audio recording here. However, um, it's also a good idea if you sleep early at night. This is a good idea. It helps. Because if you don't sleep early at night, it makes it difficult for you to attend the tahajjud prayer. And there was a clear difference in terms of the attendees today as uh, or in comparison to the attendees yesterday and since we are a people of inviting towards good and forbidding evil it is upon each and every one of you to figure out who wasn't at the tahajjud prayer today and it is for you to also look at those who are not sitting in this class today and were here yesterday and it is for you to give them some advice um, or at least check up on them what happened are you okay is your health okay Right? Maybe they're not well, check up on them. This is the way of the Ummah Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Where are you my dear brother? Where are you my dear sister? The class has started, I didn't see the tahajjud prayer. I think I saw you at breakfast somehow, but then I didn't see you in the class again. So uh, what's happening? Do you have knowledge fatigue? They say yes, and you have to do some da'wah there, right? إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالصَّبْرِ We discussed the four uh, criterion for survival from Surah Al-Asr during the first day. And uh, make it a point that our ending is stronger than our beginning. And tomorrow will be the last day. And obviously today really marks uh, the last day of uh, the intensive knowledge share. So um, you want to make your ending stronger. You want to make sure you attend that tahajjud prayer tomorrow. You want to make sure you attend uh, the classes today and uh, attend the closing tomorrow. Because Al-A'malu bil khawatim as the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us, actions are judged by their endings. So make sure your ending is strong. And do some da'wah to your fellow attendees and teach them this important lesson. Yesterday, um, we discussed the first hadith, alhamdulillah. Um, as I said, what was shared was a drop um, from an ocean in terms of the knowledge of this hadith. Such is uh, the inheritance of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Um, I had some questions, follow-up questions from the session yesterday. Uh, someone said, 
What about the person who intends Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and during the worship um, they feel there's the presence of someone um, in the room and because of that they beautified more their worship. Uh, yesterday you said uh, or it was said that this doesn't cancel out uh, their, uh, their, their, their entire effort but they're not rewarded for the extra. Alright, so they're not rewarded for the extra, are they punished for the extra? Right? And that's a good question. That is a good question. And we say yes, they're liable to being punished for uh, the excess, for the, for, for the extra that was done for other than Allah. They're not rewarded and they're liable to being punished for it. And they must seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that extra. And that is why we were taught from the sunnah to, to constantly or to, be, uh, to engage Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the following dua. Dua. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min an ushrika bika shay'a wa ana a'lamu bih wa astaghfiruka lima la a'lamu bih Allahumma oh Allah inni a'udhu bik I seek refuge in you min an ushrika bika shay'an I seek protection in you from associating partners with you in any way wa ana a'lamu bih whilst I know I seek your protection from being with wa astaghfiruka lima la a'lamu bih and I seek your forgiveness if I did this unknowingly. And this should be uh, a vital dua that we make uh, in our day, right? And um, in, in a talk that I, I gave in Melbourne on the power of dua recently in my last visit, I spoke about this point that we rarely make dua, to be honest. Even if you think you make dua often, it's not enough. If you understood the reality of dua and how much we need to ask from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how much assistance we need to seek from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So especially for those who are da'wah workers, and I see a lot of da'wah workers in the room, this dua should be, uh, should be moist on your tongue. Before the action, during the action, and especially after the action. And uh, Imam Salah al-Budair was asked about how he manages to maintain his ikhlas when he stands uh, on the musalla in Masjid al-Nabawi. <coughs> and um, uh, you know, because Masjid al-Nabawi, it's a pre prestigious musalla, it's the Masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's got thousands of musallis. Uh, your, your, your one salah is multiplied a, a thousand times. Alhamdulillah, we are going there inshallah. Allah take us there and return us back home safely and successfully. Ameen. So, how do you manage this? And he said, I never start the salah except that I make dua to Allah that if the salah is not for his sake alone, that he causes me to die before the takbir. He takes me back to him before I announce that takbir. That he takes me back to him before I'm placed in a trial. There's no doubt that's a big trial. You rather return back to Allah than to start that salah for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because that will be your destruction. You rather return back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala safely than to remain for a moment paving your destruction. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. So this is the way of, of, of the scholars and, and, and those who are close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they fear the, 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 the aspect of making any of their worship for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Did you think of any questions that you'd like me to address now before we move on from yesterday's session? Because I think, uh, as some of you have said, we've touched on points that uh, we would love to learn about, uh, we've been wanting to uh, know about, and we've had questions about, but we've never really received um, the answers to these questions uh, in a sort of structured no no uh, knowledge-based uh, kind of setting and as you can see you can tie all these lessons to the first hadith 
of Arba'in al-Nawawi. Do you have any questions before we move on? Okay, so the next hadith we want to take is another mighty hadith and all the hadith of uh, this particular book are mighty. And as you will see, as we progress through, uh, you know, Arba'in al-Nawawi, what, what will amaze you is the tartib, the order of the hadith. How they've been ordered. That first we have Inna Amalu bin Now we have this next hadith which is considered Um As-Sunnah, and we'll discuss it. Like we have Surah Fatiha, which is Um Al-Kitab, the mother of the book. The scholars say the next hadith. Some of the scholars have said this hadith is Um As-Sunnah. It's the mother of of hadith. It's the mother hadith of hadith, right? But this hadith comes straight after the hadith about ikhlas, because if you don't have sincerity, you're wasting your time with the next hadith, right? So look at the order, and then and then you'll find a hadith that will follow up that will be a continued explanation of some of the aspects from this hadith, like the hadith that will come after about Islam has been built upon five um, uh, foundations, right? Um, or, or Islam has been built upon five, right? And that hadith is actually present in the hadith that we're going to take now. So I just want you to appreciate the thought process of the ulama, that yes, they never mentioned any comments. This book has no commentary. It has no heading. But we can still benefit from their fiqh, from the fiqh of these scholars, in terms of how they place the hadith. And uh, so this is number one, in terms of instruction. Number two, also in terms of importance, because no doubt matters of belief come before the action part. And the first hadith you take has got to do with tawheed. And when we take the next hadith, the first question that Jibreel is going to ask is about the matters of Islam and the matters of Iman, which is the basis of belief, right? So there's a due benefit that we gain in, in terms of our understanding of how amazing our scholars were, even though they didn't write anything, through just looking at how they place the, how they orderize, you know, the, the, the order, the, the tartib, the method of placement of the different ahadith. We benefit these two things. Number one, education methodology, right? Structure, cohesiveness uh, between uh, the, the, the narrations and number two uh, how they we can actually deduce from this fiqh of da'wah that you got to start with the most important thing which is belief without belief nothing else matters then you've taught them about the importance of tawheed now you've got to teach them what that entails so we're not going into the hadith of which we discussed yesterday Imam Ahmed said this is one of the hadith of the three hadith that Islam revolves around that hadith hasn't come yet right we haven't gone to the hadith about bid'ah. That hadith hasn't come yet. We see we're focusing on belief, now explaining what belief entails, and it will continue to happen in a process until we move on outside of the, uh, the pillars of Islam and the pillars of Iman, and then we move into, the, uh, into matters re uh, pertaining to jurisprudence rulings and fiqh matters and uh, uh, objectives of the sharia and um, uh, general manners uh, and morals that you need to have as a Muslim. Right? Because very early on, we won't be doing it in this knowledge hive, but very early on you'll see the hadith of, I think it's Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, which talks about how Allah gathers us in the womb of our mothers at 40 day intervals. And someone will say, why is this hadith coming here? But this is a powerful hadith in terms of cementing our knowledge of number one, Qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that he is Al-Qadir. He is upon all able. And this is teaching us the reality when we say, Amantu Billah, we believe in Allah. So what do you believe about this Allah? And then also when you look at the pillars of Iman, you will be learning about wal qadri khayrihi wa sharri, the qadr of Allah. 
And then Allah is teaching you in this hadith how he sends the angel with the qadr of how long you will live and your sustenance and whether you'll be from the people of the hellfire or the people of Jannah because of your deeds, of course. So this is an education which builds our knowledge of the foundation that we were just taught in the previous narration. So it's, it's phenomenal, honestly, how the, you know, this thought process that went into it. And think about this, that we got Ibn Salah, then Imam al-Nawawi comes and adds, and throughout we have this cohesion. And Ibn Rajab adds his eighth until we get the fifth, the ahadith of, uh, if we look at Ibn Rajab's book, and we have this cohesion, we have this synergy between the narrations. And today we talk about uh, methodology of education, methodology of teaching. I kid you not, just by studying subtle aspects from the writings of our scholars, you could write books in terms of uh, teaching methodology. Subhanallah. So let's take this next um, hadith. This hadith, as I said, is the mother of the sunnah, and you'll see why. عن أبي عبد الرحمن عبد الله بن عمر بن الخطاب رضي الله عنهما قال سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول بني الإسلام على خمس This is not here. Let's try this one. Oh, yeah, this is the hadith that we need. This is the hadith we're taking, hadith number two. Well, 
So this is um, the second hadith of Imam al-Nawawi and this hadith is known as Hadith Jibreel and um, uh, as I said the scholars have said that this hadith is Umm al-Sunnah um, Imam al-Hafiz ibn Hajar al-Asqalani rahimahullah the famous Shafi'i scholar and the person who explained Sahih al-Bukhari in a book called Fath al-Bari uh, he mentions that Imam al-Qurtubi uh, was a famous Maliki scholar um, from Qurtuba uh, who has a famous tafsir tafsir al-Qurtubi he says this imam he says that um, uh, that this particular hadith it qualifies to be called Umm as-Sunnah it qualifies to be called Umm as-Sunnah why? because of what it contains from uh, the knowledge of Islam and the knowledge of Iman and the knowledge of Ihsan. Um, and in this particular hadith, um, or before that, there's a, there's a ayah in the Quran um, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna Allah ya'muru bil adli wal ihsani wa ita'i zil qurba wa yanha anil fahshai wal munkari wal baghi. Right? Um, they say, uh, some scholars have said in this particular ayah, all of the, uh, most of the ahkam of the religion, most of the rulings of the religion uh, are in this ayah. Inna Allah ya'muru bil adl. Allah commands you towards adl, uh, justice, right? Uh, and equity. Inna Allah ya'muru bil adl. Wal ihsan, and excellence. And excellence in your beliefs, excellence in your actions, excellence uh, in your relationships with Allah and the relationship with the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah commands you towards maintaining family relations, looking after the bonds of kinship. So that's, these are three things. Then, and Allah forbids you. Uh, Allah forbids uh, immorality. And Allah forbids you from that which Allah dislikes. That which Allah has cited as haram. Allah teaches you and warns you. So that perhaps you may remember. So the scholars say most of the knowledge of um, the Quran, most of the rulings of the Quran are in this particular um, ayah. And um, 
they say with regards to this particular hadith, then most of the teachings of the Prophet wasallam are in this particular uh, hadith, given what this hadith contains from the knowledge that was taught to the Prophet wasallam by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, this hadith, as I said, it's called Hadith Jibreel. Why? Because Jibreel is the one who um, comes down. And in this hadith, we learn a little bit about, or we learn about Islam, at least the foundations of it. We learn about the foundations of Iman. We learn about the foundations of Ihsan. We learn about good character, good morals, good etiquette. We learn about some of the, uh, we learn some of the minor signs related to the Day of Judgment. We learn about the etiquettes of seeking knowledge or how transformational knowledge comes about. And I promised you yesterday that I'm on the verge of releasing an article called Transformers. Right? And this hadith really um, contains knowledge related to progress and transformation. And uh, we will see this, inshallah, as we traverse through this, uh, this hadith. And um, one of the evidences very early on from your reading uh, of, the, of, of the English translation on the screen as the Arabic was being recited, one of the understandings you would have, or you should have, inshallah, uh, taken from your reading of the English translation at least, is that really this hadith is about teaching us about our deen. Because after all these questions were asked and all the answers were given, the Prophet ﷺ said, he came to teach you your religion. He came to teach you your religion. So that last bit really emphasizes everything that is uh, or that comes uh, before it. Now, um, At the outset of this particular hadith, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, he was the narrator of which hadith? The first hadith. And he's also the narrator of this particular hadith. He says that we were once with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And we learn from this from the outset, my dearest brothers and sisters in Islam, how the companions were always surrounding their teacher. Yesterday I was asked the question, that you know, how much Islamic knowledge should I seek? How much learning should I do? Right? Do, you know, that's a valid question. How much learning should I do? Because not everyone is supposed to become a sheikh. Not everyone is supposed to become a teacher of the religion and a preserver of the inheritance of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? And uh, seeking knowledge um, at an advanced level, as we said yesterday, is a communal obligation. But how much should you seek? You should seek everything, all the knowledge that you as a Muslim, you have to know. And yesterday we, we spoke about this, that there's two sets of knowledge. The first set is knowledge that no Muslim is excused uh, for being ignorant about, for not having knowledge of. If you don't have knowledge of the matters that you need to have knowledge about, like how to pray, how to pay your zakah, how to observe your hajj, if you're doing trading, matters pertaining to trade, if you're getting married, the fiqh of marriage, you have to know this. Nobody is telling you that you need to reach a level of ijtihad and be fatwa and come up with uh, rulings uh, for new matters in the religion or uh, certain situations that the Muslims fall into. But we're talking about normal circumstances that most of the Muslims um, live by. Uh, the knowledge that the Sharia has taught us as knowledge that you have to know, it's wajib for you to know it. You have to study that knowledge. So that's number one in terms of you. You, you don't have to be, as I said, a mufti of the religion. Khalid ibn Walid was not a mufti. He was a man in the front line. He was the sword of Allah. Abdurrahman ibn Auf, he was not a mufti. Right? He was a, a trader. Uh, he, uh, in fact, from the Sahaba, all the Sahaba, 
thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, only 130 of them were known for fatwa. And even out of the 130 or included in the list of 130 are people who passed one fatwa in their life. But they were included in it. And this makes up 130. Out of the 130, seven were known for their fatwa. Seven only from the Sahaba who studied their religion to an advanced level. And guess what? Abu Huraira is not from them. Who was the narrator of most of the, uh, of the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This doesn't mean he wasn't a faqih, but he was not from the muqtirul fatawa. He was not from those who were known, established for fatawa during the time of the Sahaba. Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Abdullah ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Aisha radiallahu anha, Zayd ibn Thabit radiallahu anhum ajma'in, and Ali radiallahu anhu, seven. These are seven who are known to be from the muftis of the Sahaba. So this should teach us, right, that you don't, no one is telling you to become a sheikh. But you are being told that even the other Sahaba, the Khalid ibn Walid, Khalid ibn Walid and those like him, meaning those who were known to be uh, the, the, the frontline battalions, the traders from the Sahaba, the policy uh, enforcers from the Sahaba, they all had the knowledge of the religion that they had to know. There was no excuse for them not to know. And that is what is asked of you. So that's number one. Number two, what is also asked of you is to have a relationship with a spiritual guide. Someone who has thabat, someone who's founded in uh, his or her religion, and she is a means of your steadfastness. Why? He or she is a means of your steadfastness. Why? Because especially today, we live in testing times. Times of trials and tribula tri tribulations that hit us at speeds and quantities that perhaps the world never experienced before. So you got to have that guide. And perhaps today, the minimum viable product or the minimum viable requirement in terms of the knowledge that every Muslim should know is more than the minimum viable requirement of the generations before. Why? Because we live in times where misconceptions that affect our religion, are, these misconceptions are flourishing and they never had the same traction and momentum during previous generations. So you can't expect that, you know, I, my parents knew this, so it's enough for me to know this. No, they lived at a different time, you live at a different time. Their knowledge of aqidah would suffice them in their time. Alhamdulillah, that was good. So they had knowledge of the compulsory matters of the deen which they needed to know. With Allah, they are absolved in terms of obligation. But that doesn't mean the same criterion applies to you because you live at a different time which requires you to upskill yourself or to assist yourself by having the skills to ensure that your iman is protected. And if you don't have that knowledge which will lead to your iman taking a dip or your iman being lost, then you are sinful for not having that knowledge. Because this sharia is complete. This Quran will last till the day of Qiyamah. The teachings of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam are to uh, act as a guide for us till the day of Qiyamah. There's nothing the world can bring except the antidote to that disease is in the Quran and Sunnah. You have to study it. It's there. Maybe your parents didn't need it. 
Maybe your grandparents didn't need to, but you need to. And them not knowing does not mean you don't have to know. Because they lived at a time and you live at a time. Does that make sense? So no one is telling you to become the mujtahid or mufti of the religion. But we're telling you to have an acute awareness of your circumstances, your situations, your dynamic environments. Our environments are very dynamic. They're not static like before. Change uh, a minute now is, I mean, I might be exaggerating now, but it's, it's like that. Like a minute is too much. In a minute, things change. In a minute, things change. Technology changes. Inventions are, 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 are created. Things are uh, discovered. Ideas change. Paradigms are shifting. Right? And especially in a world where what's right and what's wrong is being governed by policymakers. And policymakers, they change every three years. So every three years, something new is coming about. That's it, right? So this is the answer to that particular question. So here we have the Sahaba constantly with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because everything that has been, Allah has kept in preservation to us, matters to us. The fact that these words of the Hadith, one day we were with him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that these wordings have been preserved till today and will be preserved till the day of Qiyamah, teaches us how important it is for you to have your spiritual guide. And that is why uh, some of the youth that I mentor, I advise them that every one of us, each and every one of us, we should have a board of directors. You teach yourself as a project. And that project is you. Project, you. Right? And every project needs a board of directors. You have a board of directors. A spiritual guide. A person who knows halal and haram. A person who will motivate you when you're, when you're experiencing a dip. A person who is, who's wise you can bounce your ideas off and get some shura. So you are not judge and jury of your decisions. Right? And people who sincerely wish you well and will answer your call when you call. And you contact them and you let them know that you, I want you to be from my board of directors. If I send you a message, please respond to me within three days. For example. Right? And these, these people, you, they are people you respect. And you, you, you know, so that when, you actually, when you need a fatwa, there's someone there to answer your call. When you feel there's a, a misconception coming to you, there's someone who you have access to. So you need to teach yourself as a project and should, you should have the, uh, a board of directors. The Sahaba, they had their board of directors and it was the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? And multiple hats in the board because he was the Prophet of Allah. Right? All guidance stemmed from him. And he was their board of directors. So Umar is saying, one day we were with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. alayna. Suddenly, this man appeared. Shadeed Bayad Athiyab. He had pristine white clothing. And Shadeed Sawad Ashaq. And pristine, uh, a pristine black colored beard. And pristine means it was combed, it was, uh, it was smart, right? Tashakhas, as they say in the Arabic language. I mean, he, he came out and he was, uh, he, he was ready. Ready for what? To come and teach, but before that to come and learn. Because the scholars say Jibril came as a student and as a teacher. As a student in how he came to the gathering of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, as you will see. Today, how do we come to learn about Islam? With the clothes that we're wearing two days ago. 
Oh, I forgot to do my laundry. Mm, this doesn't smell too bad. I'll just wear this. Go. We don't take pride in ourselves. Right? Jaleel comes in not just white clothes, pristine white clothes. And this should teach us the borders of the color white. Color white was beloved to the Prophet and the Ummah was taught to bury those who passed away in the color in, in a white coffin, preferably, right? They should be covered in white. Because white denotes cleanliness. And this knowledge is clean. And this knowledge is not only purified in and of itself, it purifies you. So you come to it ready to be purified. You come to it after having a shower and after uh, dressing smartly. And after checking yourself in the mirror, that you're ready to stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because you've come here for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We spoke yesterday about seeking knowledge being an act of worship. This is how Jibreel came. He was worshipping Allah. So he wanted to stand in front of Allah in the same way he would stand in front of people and not feel ashamed. Today, subhanallah, we will not stand in front of people in some of the clothing that we wear and the way we look when we start our salah. We start our salah in our pajamas. And this is not saying that salah is not accepted. Because if you cover your awrah, that's the condition. But this is not good etiquette with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That you in your vest, for example. You, if someone knocked your door, you wouldn't open your door in your vest. But you're in your vest and you're observing the salah. This is not good manners. And when you come to seek knowledge, come with good manners as well. Remember we spoke about transformers. Keep this name in your mind. I might release the article today. I might have to skip the boat trip. This is transformative knowledge. Knowledge which changes you, brothers and sisters. You want the knowledge to grow you. The first thing is to be serious about attending it. Come dressed well after having your a breakfast that will keep you awake, after having slept well at night, and you'll be ready to receive from the most valuable inheritance on earth today. That's when you will grow. From knowing to growing. Today, there's too much knowing. Not enough growing. Too much movement, not enough progress. Why? Because we have not taken care of the function of transformation, the function of growing, the function of development, the function of progress. We haven't taken care of it. So there's a lot of knowledge here, but there's nothing internalized. And we are running around, but we're still on the same spot. I don't know if you're on my Telegram channel. Once I put up a post about Alice in Wonderland. Right? about how we benefit from that story. Because when we were little in school, the teacher would read us the book. See, school had some benefits. We just didn't have that understanding of what is this book trying to say. The book had benefits. You know, when you were small boys, girls, no mahram issues, sitting on the floor nicely, teacher reading the book, everyone's happy, right? And the teacher's telling you about this queen, the red queen, was it the red queen? The red queen, huh? not the white queen. The red queen. Right, the red queen, and she's shouting, Alice, run, run, and Alice in the bottle. And Alice is running, 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 and she's out of breath, and she says, I'm running, and the queen is saying, faster, 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 and Alice is running, and she's out of breath, and then she stops, and she looks around, and she says, she sees herself on the same spot. You know, when I think of that, I think of how we learn Islam today. Running from one YouTube lecture to the next, one conference to the next, right? Not with our notebooks, with our selfie cameras, huh? This is how the Islamic learning is today. Being caught up in the hype, casual learning. I feel good. I can tick the boxes. I'm doing something Islamic. I feel pious because I attended the talk of Sheikh Fulan. 
and we feel tired for that. We ran around that day. Sahib, what's going to happen on the day of Qiyamah now? Allah is going to tell you that you knew what did you do. You can't tell Allah I was ignorant. No growing, no transformation. Right? So Jibreel comes in this way. Now, firstly, you got to understand this was a phenomenal scene because we're talking Medina at the time of the Prophet It's gated, it's small. Masjid al-Nabawi today is bigger than what Medina was at the time of the Prophet Masjid al-Nabawi today is bigger. Al-Baqi' Al-Baqi' al-Gharqad Al-Gharqad, it is in the hadith sometimes says Al-Baqi' al-Gharqad Al-Gharqad which is the graveyard of the Prophet uh, the graveyard of Medina it's called Al-Gharqad because they had a lot of trees Gharqad trees that were there. This graveyard was considered to be on the outskirts of Medina. If you read in the Sunnah there would be statements saying that we're going to the outskirts of Medina to bury the body. Outskirts. Today, the graveyard has expanded inwards and the masjid has expanded outwards that the, the graveyard is a stone throw. Right? So you've got to imagine here, you've got to put the scene in your mind that this closed area where everyone prayed, it's a Muslim city, everyone was doing jama'ah, everyone knew each other, and if there was a strange face today in our place, you would see dust on his beard, you would see dirty clothes, because this is a traveler coming in. There's no, you know, hotel in Medina that, you know, he checked in his hotel and had a quick shower and he's come. There's no Airbnb. <laughs> Some Sahabi rented out his house on <laughs> somewhere and this guy came in and went in, had a quick shower and came to the masjid. No. So this is strange to Umar. That who is this guy? We don't know him and you'll see this. He says, pristine white clothes, amazing beard. No one has seen him before and no one from amongst us knows who this person is. This is what Umar uh, 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 is saying, we don't see on him the signs of travel. That's who we immediately we see travel signs on the visitor to Medina. Alright, so we don't see the sign of travel on him, so someone from amongst us must know him and housed him and allowed him to freshen himself up before coming in. But Umar says, And no one from amongst us knew this person. Alright, what does he do? What does he do? Now before that, Jibreel alayhi salam used to sometimes come resembling a companion called Dihya al-Kalbi, right? He used to come and uh, resemble this particular companion. But we learn from this hadith that sometimes Jibreel would come not resembling anybody. Because if he resembled the Sahabi, then the Sahaba would have said, we saw someone who looked like Dihya, or Dihya entered the gathering, and he came and he did this with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But he's saying, no, this person, no one from amongst us knew him. Which means Jibreel came in the shape of a man, but not resembling anyone that the Sahaba knew. So he came as, maybe we'd call them freshmen, I don't know, you know, new, new, new year comes in, the new students have arrived. Right? The new students have questions. That the other guys, we, we know this question, we wouldn't ask these questions, right? So the new student comes in. What does this companion do? Or the student do? The student comes and he enters the gathering. And he walks to the front of the gathering. 
and he sits on his knees, right? He sits on his knees and he placed his knees as close as possible to the knees of the Prophet Sallallahu So the knees were touching, if not touching, very close. So he was sitting as the Prophet Sallallahu was sitting. And that's why some of our mashayikh, um, if, if we sit on the floor, then they sit on the floor. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's, it's not suitable because of cameras now, etc., etc. But if you go to some private lessons where there's no cameras, etc., I've seen this from our teachers. That we will put a chair for them and we'll be sitting on the floor and the teacher will sit on the floor. Because it's either you get chairs for everyone, but since we can't, we sit on the floor. To resemble the, this hadith that the Prophet wasallam was sat and Jibreel sat the way he was sat. So Jibreel's knees was close to the knees of the Prophet And Jibreel put his hands, his palms on his thighs. Now, there's two interpretations of this because of the pronoun. His, who does it refer to? His meaning Jibreel or his meaning the Prophet So some scholars have said that Jibreel sat down with his knees close to the Prophet and put his hands on the thighs of the Prophet But I think the stronger view is Jibreel sat down and he placed his thighs on his own thighs. Because that seems more appropriate in terms of the relationship between the teacher and the student. And we don't have any other narration from the time of the Prophet where the Sahabas had the Sahaba, they had a norm of sitting where their students placed their hands on their thighs or they placed their hands on the teacher's thighs, right? So we don't have anything to contradict our understanding that in our norms we would find this a bit awkward. So perhaps the stronger opinion is Jibreel sat exactly how the Prophet was sitting. And then after this, um, he asks his question. Now, you know, the scholars say, subhanallah, that what Jibreel did, coming smart, smelling nice, looking fresh, looking like he came to learn, the way he sat in front of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the way he, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he handled himself, you know, he didn't come there and, and, and sit like lying down on his back. Some people in the masjid, you see them, hands at the back, huh? chilling out, legs, mashallah, pointing towards the sheikh. Uh, in the Qibla's direction, the sheikh is sitting in front of the masjid. He's sitting like this masjid, like they're on the beach in Hawaii. All, all that's missing is this pina colada or whatever you want to call it. Now, this is not the way to, to seek knowledge. He sat in with adab. He sat with, with, with etiquette. And some people say, no, you know my back. Sometimes you teach the lesson. Where do you find the students? At the edge of the masjid, all on the walls. Everyone is fighting for place on the wall. As if there's, it's plots of land and it's got value and auction. Someone is auctioning. Everyone is, yeah, yeah, my place, my place, my place. And if we, we used to go study, we used to ask the students, book us places in the front. And even then, there was a fiqh ruling on that. That public places are open to everybody. There's no right, no one has a right to it. This morning I was asked that, Sheikh, you know, uh, you guys have been sitting on the table by the window overseeing the seat. And now the sisters want to sit there. So they felt that, you know, the mashaykh will get angry. So can you just um, uh, speak to them and let them know that, you know, will you be upset? I said, guys, uh, of course, we'll be happy. We'll be happy for you to sit there and enjoy what we've been enjoying, seeing the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the sunrise. Because the fiqh ruling is public space. No one has a right to it except the person who comes first. Right? So we would sometimes tell the student, hey, book me a place. You know, put, 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 a, put the, here's my book, please put it there. Bec today, if we had to book places, Masha'Allah on the wall. And if the masjid was built in a way where the walls were across the sufuf, then Masha'Allah everyone would be happy. This is our masjid. 
Huh? We can, every saf has a wall to sit on. <laughs> right? Now, the scholars say, when you come looking like you want to seek ilm, this assists the teacher in teaching. And I spoke about this to you guys yesterday. And sometimes, you know, it's a norm. The teacher comes, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. They have to repeat. It's not good manners. It's not good manners. Firstly, if someone greets you, which is a sunnah, it's compulsory for you to respond. I don't know if you know that. You're studying adab. Learn this lesson. To greet is sunnah. To respond is compulsory. وَإِذَا حُيِّيتُمْ بِتَحِيَّةٍ فَحَيُّوا بِأَحْسَنَ مِنْهَا أَوْ رُدُّوهَا As Allah says, if you are greeted with a greeting, فَحَيُّوا, you have to respond to it. In a manner equal to the greeting received, or you beat the greeting received. Which means if someone says, As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, then it's not enough to say, wa alaykum salam. You're sinful. You have to equal that greeting. You have to say, wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullah. Or even better, wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And if someone greets you and says, Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, you have to respond in full. Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm not saying the audience doesn't respond, but they lack knowledge of this etiquette. Because the Shaykh says, Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. All he hears is wa alaykum salam and the rest is why? Because half the audience stops at wa alaykum salam, the other three quarters uh, stops at wa rahmatullah, and only the last bit, uh, the minority completed the sentence. If you show the sheikh or the teacher that you want to learn, the sheikh will be more ready to teach you. And I remember my sheikh, Sheikh Salih al Sheikh Havidullah, teaching us this when he taught us this hadith. The scholar Ba'adul Ulama, I said, some of the scholars have told us this. And Sheikh Salih al Sheikh, who is the minister of, of Da'wah in, in Saudi for, for many years, from the most amazing scholars of our time. But because of his position, he, does, he can't teach that much. But really, his lessons are absolutely amazing. And he comes from that school of thought, where from, as when he was a very, because from the Ala Sheikh uh, 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 positioning, and the, the, the sunnah of, of, of this family, is when the kids are young, they sit in halaqa. So he grew up as a small boy memorizing mutun, memorizing the small books of Islam, the different sciences, then upgrading and upgrading, sitting with probably some of his family members who were also, because it's Ayla Sheikh, means the family of scholars, right? Uh, they have, they're traditionally known to have scholarship in the family across the generation, so they're learning of it. So he comes from the school of thought. And he says this, that our teachers, some of our teachers would say that if you don't come to the lesson, showing that you want to learn, the scholars would answer you with a minimalist answer, a minimalist type of approach. You get the, the least that you are, the you know, we talk about minimum viable product, well, that's the answer. So they've done their haqq with Allah and they never had to do more. But subhanAllah, some of the times we would go to our teachers with such adab and such excitement and we would ask a question and our teacher would answer 10 questions that we didn't even think about. And we developed as a result. They gave us books that we can go to to further our knowledge. Subhanallah, we didn't realize. They told us the books that they were reading and the sheikhs that they benefited from. Then we went to those books. And sometimes we, you end up knowing more than your teacher knew. All because you had adab with your teacher. All because you had adab with your teacher. So this is part one of the hadith. Jibril coming as a student. As a student, brothers and sisters, look after the etiquettes of seeking knowledge. Transformation 
requires due diligence, requires process, not, cas not being casual. From the due diligence is reading your notes before you come, revising yesterday's work, right? right? Uh, writing down your question, framing your questions well so you don't waste the teacher's time and the teacher understands your question immediately. We spoke about this in earlier se settings and also from due diligence is looking the part, dressing well, ensuring that you had that sleep, you come, you've come fresh, you're ready to learn. And some of our scholars would say that the knowledge of Islam, if you give it all of you, it will give you some of it. What do you think will happen if you only give it some of it? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the understanding. We're going to take a short break. Brother Tahir will guide us through it just to ensure that we um, take care of the camera, uh, memory card, and so on and so forth. And then we'll continue, inshallah.